Well, as I mentioned last week, we focused on verse 1 of this first or second chapter of the book of Philippians. And just for those that weren't here last week, a quick review, I think it's on your screen. We looked at what we called the motivations for being a spiritually unified body. The motivations we looked at were encouragement uh, from being united with Christ as we are motivated from our being united with Him. We are one abiding in Christ and He in us. We looked at the second motivation of being motivated because of the love that Christ has shown to us. And as we have received His love, understand what that means in our own life, then we extend that to others. Also, fellowship with the Spirit. Being motivated by the God who loves us has given us His very Spirit that indwells us, lives with us, and we live in that power of His presence in us and through us. And lastly, we looked at the last motivation of having the compassion of Christ for us. Uh, that we were, as we saw in the Gospels, just like those that Christ had compassion for, we're harassed and helpless. Uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil harasses and, help and causes us to be helpless on a daily basis. And we go to the cross. We go to Jesus in our state of helplessness, uh, not just once for a relationship, but a daily ongoing need expressed to him through our struggles. And so those are the motivations for being a church, just as Paul was encouraging those believers in Philippi to be a church that is unified together. So today we're looking at now the marks of what we call as a spiritual unified church. The marks of spiritual unity. What are some indicators, some characteristics that Paul speaks about in these next three verses to, as he did the church in Philippi, and he speaks to us even today. We're going to look at three different marks. The first will be oneness in purpose and practice. The second will be a humility of spirit. And the last will be the third mark of selflessness towards others. So looking first at this characteristic number one, oneness in purpose and practice. Paul says in verse 2, after he gives all the motivations and, uh, perp- and, and those purposes, he says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. When a church is unified, like Paul was seeing and affirming the church in Philippi, they are unified in their purpose and in their practice together, being the church. Uh, They are aware and have in common the same vision, the same focus, the same direction, the same trajectory spiritually as a people, a community of brothers and sisters in Christ. They have that common bond together. And it's not just an awareness that you're you're a professing believer, I'm a professing believer, we have that in common and we kind of know that from a distance, but it's really interacting with one another on that common purpose and practice. And so Paul says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, thinking alike in how we consider the truths of what Scripture says for our lives daily. So as we're out and about and we're living day-to-day in the workplace, in the marketplace, uh, in the schools, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, as we go about living our lives as believers, we do so knowing that we're living a life, hopefully, very like-minded with those in the body with us, wherever they are. So though we are scattered, as we leave here this afternoon, we will all go and be scattered throughout Metro Atlanta, 
all the next seven days. Until we return back again together as the body of Christ next Sunday, though we're not together, moment, day, hour by hour, day by day, we should have a common comfort, a conviction, an assurance that everyone together, though we are scattered out away from each other, not in physical presence with one another, we're still very much unified. We're together in spirit. We're together in our purposes. And so your purpose, if you go to work here and someone else's purpose when they go to work over here or they go to school here or they're at home here, all the places that we direct our attention, our investments of time and energy, they're all still aiming and seeking the same common purpose and seeking to glorify God. You know, when we're unified, we have that common purpose. And it's not to have maybe uh, what many would want the church to be. Our purpose as Christ Community is not to be the biggest church in Cobb County or in Metro Atlanta. Um, it's not to be the best church, if even you could measure what that means, in our Atlanta area. It's not to have the most beautiful church building in Atlanta. We'd like to have a building someday, but it's not necessarily even that day to have the most elaborate, amazing architectural design of what a church is about. It's not to have the most missionaries on our support list. That's not what the church's purpose or goal should necessarily be, though we certainly want to support world missions. It's not to be the hippest, the coolest worship service in all of Cobb County. And we have the most coolest worship director in all of Cobb County. We do have the coolest worship director in all of Cobb County. But that's not our goal. It's just not. You know, it's not our goal. It's not our purpose. So what is our purpose? What's your purpose for being in this church? What's your purpose for being in any church? Well, hopefully you would agree that it is one thing. It is to know, to love, and to glorify Jesus. That's the purpose for why we are His. He's created us for that purpose. He's, he's loved us and He relates to us for that very reason, that we are His and we can love and worship Him. We glorify Him in all that we do, all that we think, all that we say. Even as we fail and struggle in doing that daily, all of us do, it is our common purpose. And we must agree on that. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, a very helpful catechism document. The first question, many of you know this, maybe you as a child were raised with these type of uh, uh, catechisms. It says, what's the chief end of man? What's the purpose of mankind? Answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's our purpose together, our common purpose. Our practice needs to then resemble that. You know, when we're unified, we're like-minded. We desire the things that are similar spiritually. Hopefully, the things you desire, you desire spiritually in your walk with God, your desire to grow in your relationship with Christ, are the very same things, or many of them are very similar. You might express them differently or look at them from a different angle, but you still have the same basic desires as those who sit in the chairs next to you in this service today. The same common desires to grow spiritually. 
we do have, as a church, a clear stated vision. On the worship bulletin, you see written there every Sunday, our stated vision and purpose as a church. And it's important for everyone in our body to unite around our common vision, our common purpose. Our desire is to see the gospel change hearts, lives, and community by multiplying disciples throughout northwest Atlanta and beyond. And that's what we seek to do together, to see the glory of God be the glory of northwest Atlanta. That means that what we choose, what we choose to put our time, our energy, our resources financially should support that common purpose together. If an outsider were to look at our common vision statement and ask you this question, do you support that vision that I see written there? Do you support that? If they were to ask you that, what would you say? Would you say, well, I'm not sure. Or hopefully you would say, well, yes, I do. That's my church. That's where I believe God's called me to participate in this common purpose of seeing God glorified and seeing his gospel go to all the nations. Hopefully you would say yes. Let me ask you, though, if that same person who asked you, do you support that vision, and you said, yes, I do, if that same person were to allow them to look and have access to your personal calendar and schedule of what's coming up this week or what's happened in the past month in your personal schedule, family schedule, personal work schedule, uh, your discretionary time, if they had access to that in detail, if they had access to your bank statements the past year, where and how you spent and have invested your resources that God has blessed you with and given for you to steward and to manage. Let me ask, would they see evidence in those things very practically, daily? Would they see evidence that you really do support and believe in that purpose that you've just said you do? Would those two be congruent? What you say you believe and you desire and what you actually practice day to day? Would they see that you really do make a commitment and investment to see the gospel changing hearts, lives, and community? Would they see that? Would it add up and make sense in and through the body of Christ here in our church? You know, being unified means that our lives display unity in how we do spend our discretionary time, how we spend our energy, our investments, our money. The amounts are not going to be equal. We all will have different amounts invested in different ways and different manners. We all have different gifts. We all have different resources. God has given some of us to multiply 30-fold, some of us to multiply 60-fold, some of us 100 or even more. Not the same. And yet, we're all called to be faithful to all that He has given you and me. And we all are called to that same commitment. You know, take marriage, for example. The longer that you're married, and if you've put in the effort and the work that marriage does take, and those that are married know what I'm talking about, the process of being one. We talk about two people becoming one in Christ in a Christian marriage. Well, that process of becoming one begins to manifest itself over time. It doesn't happen on your honeymoon. 
It doesn't happen in the first week of being married. And it won't happen in the first month or possibly even the first year of your marriage. You might begin to see some of those the characteristic of oneness in purpose and in practice begin to evidence itself, but it's a process, a continual, ongoing, growing process of becoming one. Now, in one sense, yes, those who come together in a Christian marriage are one in uh, identity, but in practice, it is a growing process. My wife and I just this past month celebrated our silver anniversary, and I thank God for that. Thinking about 25 years, my wife and I can be in a situation and look at each other and just know what the other person is thinking. That's after many, 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 many years of just seeing and knowing one another and how we are as the way God's created us. Now, we still have struggles and issues that have to be addressed, for sure, on a weekly, daily basis. But because we've worked on being like-minded in purpose and in what we seek to do in our life and our family, being like-minded, for example, in how we spend our money. I really can't remember the last time we really argued about how we should spend our finances. Early on in our marriage, you can ask Charlotte, We definitely disagreed many times on how we should spend our very limited financial resources. And uh, we were very different. Our backgrounds were very different. But over time, our differences began to fall in the background. I learned much from her background. She learned much from my background and what we both brought to the table. And we began to become unified on how we viewed money, how we viewed how we should spend and how we, should, how we cons, uh, should view it the way God has instructed us to view our resources. So that is something we've grown in, not just in finances, but we have worked on being like-minded with and how God has given us the opportunity to parent our children. We have three daughters and we are unified on how we parent and lead our children, what we desire for them as they're growing up under our leadership and our, our care for them. We certainly have disagreements and we, we work through those, but we have a common desire for them, a common purpose. And as parents, we all understand that that's so important. You know, unity and harmony in your marriage, in your family, in your friendships, in your church They all really have a lot at stake. Now, how do they have a lot at stake? Well, in John 17, and even um, Jonathan alluded to this, John 17, Christ is praying for his followers. And he says, my prayer, as he talks to the Father, he says, my prayer is not for them alone, though. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Then he says, may they be brought to complete unity. Who? Who are they? Those who are going to come to know me through them. As believers, as those who are not believers become followers of Christ, become members of the family of God, as people are converted and they become the church together, Jesus says, may they be brought to complete unity. Why? so that the world would know that you sent me. To let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. 
So there is a lot at stake. You see, when we're unified, we then have a position, a platform for the world to observe and to know that Jesus has changed us. He has sent us to them. Our testimony is greatly hindered when we are disunified as a church. And anytime the church is disunified, then the testimony of Christ himself is hindered. It's certainly God will do his work with or without us. We know he's sovereign, and yet he's called us to be part of that testimony. And so <clears throat> Jesus even said that the world will know that we are his as we have unity with each other. The world is watching. It's watching our families. The world's watching Christian marriages. The world is watching how Christians have friendships and relationships. The world is observing how you live your life. People that do not know God are observing. They see how you live. They notice how you live, how you speak, how you interact with relationships. The world does watch. And if they see disunity, if they see division in relationships you have, well, then the beauty of the gospel is tainted. It is. Certainly, it will shine still, and yet, for that moment, it's tainted, and the attractiveness of Christ's presence for that moment is hidden in a way that it shouldn't be. It's veiled, it's clouded because of our disunity, because of our disharmony in relationships that we might be experiencing at that moment. So, oneness and purpose and how we practice is the first mark. The second mark of unity that Paul speaks about to the church in Philippi is seen in verse 3. It's the mark of humility. Humility of spirit. <clears throat> verse 3, do nothing, he says, <clears throat> out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. You know, sometimes we connote humility, we, we connect that idea, that concept of what being humble is about with maybe cowardliness or spinelessness. Someone who is really humble and meek is someone who just doesn't really have, that's another way to say that person just doesn't have a backbone. Or possibly we think about someone who lacks courage. Might be someone like that. But those traits are possibly true if submission is driven by fear. When someone is driven by fear, then there is a lack of courage. There probably is a, uh, a sense of that cowardliness that is there. But when the gospel is present, when Christ himself is present, has changed an individual, then that person's heart is submitted to him. And because of his grace, as we understand it, and his mercy, then we are not motivated or submitted to fear, but yet to him. And so that's where humility comes from, is submitting our hearts to the throne of Christ, not to the throne of fear, of what we're afraid of in this world. Without humility, we will find it impossible to achieve oneness, not with God, certainly with Him, but even with one another. When we're not humble in what we understand God has done for us, 
what he has done to us, well then, yes, not only will we struggle with him, but we will struggle with one another because we will view ourselves differently. We will actually be, become puffed up and view ourselves in a way that is not how God understands and knows us. We'll find it very difficult to have oneness with other people without a humility of spirit, especially in the church. Why is that? Well, if you've, if you've ever maybe played, whether it be uh, a team sport or just recreationally on the playground, you've played a, a, a sport that involves team activity. If you've ever done that, which many of you I'm sure have, or you've been part of a, maybe a marching band or a flag or, or a, a core team like that, or a dance team or any type of group activity in your life where unity is absolutely crucial to the health and success of that community, that group, military especially, then you know how vital true practicing humility is in a community relating to people relating to one another. There, that there is no um, one person that should be the one that stands out amongst everyone else, but all are equally seeking the same common purpose and goal, and all give deference and in humility consider other just, others just as important, if not more important, than themselves. If just one person is not willing to fulfill their role or to submit and bend a knee to that common purpose of that group, then everyone will suffer. Everyone will suffer because of that. <clears throat> Here's a question. How do you know if you're humble? Have you ever asked yourself that question? It's kind of hard to assess, isn't it? If you could assess yourself, how would you do that? Am I humble? Let me think about that. Well, if you're confident that you really are, you might have missed the mark at the beginning already. If you're extremely confident and quick to respond, oh, I'm very humble, you may want to take a pause as you reflect on the question, first of all. But I think we can do some very practical thinking when it comes to humility. Christian humility is a character trait. We're called to have it in our life. We're called for it to be an exemplary part of our Christian growth. Humility is one Christian virtue, though, that is not self-proclaimed. Think about it. It is, a, it is a character, a virtue of the Christian heart that just cannot be self-proclaimed. It would not be humility if it were. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Many times we think that's what being humble is. I just, th I just need to not think so much about myself. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So we are as much as God has created us in his image to be. Our self-image should not be based upon anything except who we are in his image and who we are in being his son or his daughter, adopted into his family and have the identity of Christ's righteousness wrapped around us fully, completely blameless in his sight, fully accepted in love, all that God has done for us. That is your identity. So when we say humility is to think of yourself less than it is to then think about in that identity, we think of who Christ is our all in all, 
and we think of our dependence on him and we don't think about who we are and how what we want we think about who he is who we are in him and what he desires in us and through us it's his agenda not ours it's his life in us not ours and asking him to put a stamp of his approval upon it. John the Baptist had this very thing in mind when he was the forerunner to Christ's public ministry. You know, as you read in the Gospels, in his public ministry, uh, even as John the Baptist was pointing to Jesus, he pointed everyone towards the Messiah. And what did John the Baptist say as Christ was coming into his public ministry? John the Baptist said, He, that is Jesus, must become greater and I must become less. He's the one that must become greater. I must become less. And what does it look like to be humble-minded? Humble-minded. Well, some very practical thoughts, questions you could have for yourself in examining your own life and your own heart. First, do you truly grasp, as I've already described, your identity, your position as a child of God? You have to start there. Do you truly grasp what it means to be a Christian, to understand the gospel applied to your life? Do you truly understand that? When we finally understand that anything good in us or from us comes wholly from abiding in Christ alone and who He is in us, we will then and only then will we be able to be in a position to receive and grow a spirit of humility. First, we must start there. Paul himself knew this as he went through his Christian journey. As you read through his letters to the many churches established in the New Testament, as Paul himself wrote half of the New Testament uh, letters, half of the New Testament uh, books, we see that in his journey leading many people to Christ, He planted multiple churches. He pioneered the Christian faith among the Gentiles in that early establishment of the church. After Jesus left the earth in his public ministry, he ascended. Paul would be considered by many a spiritual giant in Christendom. He'd be considered a giant spiritually as you read and understand the scriptures that God has revealed himself to us with. But when you read Paul's very words, you see a growing humility of spirit. You see that. You don't see self-promotion. You don't see self-pride. You see a growing spirit of humility, even as Paul was growing spiritually in his journey. 1 Corinthians 15, during Paul's third missionary journey, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, and I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. Even as a believer, he recognizes that he doesn't deserve what God has called and blessed and gifted him with in his missionary and ministry journey. Later on, after his third missionary journey, while he was in his first Roman imprisonment, he wrote in the letter to the church of Ephesus, chapter 3, he says, although I am then I am less than the least of all of God's people. This grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So first he started out with the circle of the apostles. I'm the least of those 12. I'm the least of the apostles. And now he's expanded the circle to I'm the least of all of God's people, the church. 
I'm the least. I'm not the greatest, the one who should be lifted up. Of all my brothers and sisters that have come to know him, even through what God has given me opportunity for, and those who will come to know him, I'm the least of all of us. And he continues on after his Roman imprisonment, his second, just before his second Roman imprisonment, late in his life, first he writes to his young mentoree, Timothy. He says, Timothy, here's a trustworthy saying. It deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. He's now expanded the circle even beyond the church. To who? The world. Sinners. Everyone. He says, of whom I'm the worst. He's expanded it to the entire face of humanity. Paul, it seems, should be going this way in his spiritual uh, expression of who he is spiritually and all of his growth and his accolades spiritually. Instead, he's going this way, at least in his understanding of who Jesus is, because as Paul goes this way in himself, Jesus is going this way in Paul's life. And that's what we are called to be in humility. Paul understood that. Secondly, though, we can ask ourselves, considering are we experiencing humility, are you quick to share your opinions and your judgments to other people before you're willing to listen to them and seek to understand and even empathize with what they are experiencing in their life? Are you quick to criticize? Are you quick to judge someone else when you have very little information or you have not even spoken with them, or haven't even given it an opportunity to hear what it is that you're observing. If we're quick to judge, we're quick to give opinions to other people, maybe we should consider taking a step back and being, as James says, quick to listen and slow to speak, quick to understand, maybe with our spouse or with our child or maybe some of you with your parents, with a friend or a coworker, that those should be the direction that we are in relationships, sharing the humility of what it means to be humble in spirit. Do people seek you out for your wisdom, or do they possibly avoid you because of your many words? Are they seeking you out for the wisdom that God has given you to share His wisdom with them, or... Are they maybe not around seeking out what God has placed in you because you have so many words of your own heart you are seeking to get out? Proverbs 10, the book of Proverbs is a great book for understanding the tongue and understanding our words. It's a great book to read. It says in Proverbs 10, 19, Sin is not ended by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongue. Prudent Christians hold their tongue. That's hard sometimes to do. Proverbs 17 says, The one who has knowledge uses words with restraint, and whoever has understanding is even-tempered. We can't get understanding if we're all the time sharing our opinions. We can only gain understanding if we're willing to listen quickly, to understand someone else. Even when we're struggling with what they're saying. We have to be willing to listen. A third thing we can ask in practice about are we 
experiencing and growing in humility of spirit is this. Are you often impatient with others and unwilling to bear their burdens or faults? Are you impatient with others and unwilling to bear their burdens and their faults, even if they sometimes end up hurting you? We're called to do so. We're not called to be doormats, but we are called to bear other people's burdens. We're called to even, as they have faults, bear those faults and love them anyway. Jesus says, love your enemies, much less love your brothers and sisters in Christ. But to love even your enemies... Ephesians 4, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another, bearing with one another in love. When you think about bearing children, what kind of picture comes to your mind? Bearing children is work. Bearing children takes a lot of effort. Bearing with one another takes work. It takes effort in relationships. It will not come easy and it will not be quick. It will, be, will not be something you can just check off and be done with. It is a continual, ongoing practice of humility. Fourthly, do those who know you best affirm that you truly are growing in a spirit of humility? Or do you hear maybe those who are closest to you speak to you truthfully and honestly about how that trait may not be present and what you might consider in response. The final assessing trait is specifically, though, described by Paul in verse 4 and leads us to our final mark of spiritual unity, and that is the mark of selflessness. Selflessness towards other people, whether they're believers or unbelievers, doesn't matter, just selflessness. Verse 4, each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Selflessness is very closely connected with humility. Without humility, it is impossible to be genuinely selfless and not seek applause from others. It's hard also to be genuinely humble unless you put others' interest above yours. It truly is. You can't be humble and seek your own Applause. It just doesn't work that way. To be truly selfless works contrary, though, to our natural flesh and our desires. It works contrary to what you and I would naturally want to do in our flesh. That sometimes comes on strong and tempts us to want to do otherwise. Our flesh wants to often to do anything but be selfless. At least my flesh does. That's why marriage, parenting, even close friendships, it's so hard to be selfless. It demands us to put another person's interests ahead of our own interests. Simply put, others first before yourself. It's easy to understand. It's simple, right? But it's not easy. It's hard to do in practice. If you're married, you understand that deep abiding unity cannot be realized apart from putting your spouse above yourself. Parents, we understand that our children must not only be taught what the gospel says about selflessness, but they they must see this lived out in our lives as their parents. Do your children see you living selflessly towards them, selflessly towards others? 
Do they see that? They need to see that to understand and know for their own lives what that needs to be look what needs to be what it needs to look like in their own life as they see what it looks like in you. Maybe you're in college here today or you're a single adult. Friendships you have, opportunities of deep friendships you have, those you can be selfless towards, your own family members as well. You may have to make some conscious, intentional choices to place yourself in situations that develop selflessness in your life. When you're married or you have children, every day you're in a position of having to be called to be selfless. But if you're not in those stages of life, you may have to sometimes make choices to place yourself in positions where you can be selfless and be willing to be placed in a position where you need to make those choices that are hard for the flesh to make. Serving others, being involved in others' lives that have needs. All of us, whatever stage of life, selflessness is an intentional action. How do you sustain, though, this spiritual selflessness, this focus? Well, in our own strength, we'll never be able to do so. And if you seek to try to be selfless, I'm just going to do, you know, Mike, you're right. This week, tomorrow morning, I'm going to get up and I'm going to be selfless this week. I'm going to do it. Well, I'll give you maybe till Wednesday if you're really good. And you will probably, at least by Wednesday, fall flat on your face with something where you're not being selfless. You're not putting someone else first, whether it be something small or something big. We cannot do this in our own strength. We cannot attain this type of humility. Now, we might be inconvenienced here or there for someone else, someone we love and care about, even someone maybe we just met. We might be inconvenienced on their behalf for a period of time. But it will likely be short-lived. It will. Why? Because our flesh is so strong. Our tendencies are so strong by our flesh. And we will likely have some aspect of even self-interest when we're trying to help others at times, selflessly. But if we abandon our own efforts and we trust in the selfless work and abiding power and presence of the selfless Christ in us, then he will replace our selfish hearts. He will replace it with a heart that is his heart. And we will then be able to love selflessly, act selflessly towards others because He is doing so in us and through us by the presence of His very Spirit. We'll find ourselves seeking others' interests first when we didn't expect we could ever do so. You'll love someone else and put them first even when maybe you used to never do so because it is not you doing it. It is Christ doing it in you. 1 John 4 says, and this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and He sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, Jesus loved us first. He, He was selfless first and He continues to be selfless towards us. And it's only in Him that then that selfless love grows in us and we love and are selfless towards others. That's the only way that it, that it arises, that it comes to be real in your life. 
So our prayer needs to be that we would receive more and more the appropriating love and selfless actions of Christ in our hearts by faith. And as we receive that, then we yield our hearts to that. We give ourselves to that, and then we extend ourselves to others, praying all the time, God, give me that grace. Give me your love. Give me your eyes to see and understand and to relate to those who need your grace so much.